coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy weekend to you. A lot of high school football, like the real thing happening, like this weekend, Friday night, some Saturday games. It was too hot. <laughs> Uh, my high school, by the way, had the best football season, I think, in their entire history last season. Uh, the Harlem Bulldogs uh, winning a region championship, I think, for the first time since the year I was born, 1974, and winning their first playoff game, I, I like ever. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that as long as that high school has been in existence, and it's been there for more than 100 years, it was the first time they'd ever won a playoff game. They're playing at home tonight. They are playing uh, one of their cross-county rivals, one of the bigger schools from the more affluent area of the county, Greenbrier High School. And as much as I'd love to go, ugh, it's too hot. It really is. I almost want to go to the Falcons preseason game to see Bijan Robinson run the ball a little bit, see how Desmond Ritter looks in the offense, see how Drake London and Kyle Pitts. Is Kyle Pitts going to play? Uh, it's it's really, and that game's indoors. I'm, I'm sure the roof will be closed. The air will be on. But it's so hot. Just getting to getting to it. Like I gotta walk two blocks to get to the streetcar and then take the streetcar to the Ferris wheel and then walk three more blocks. It's too hot. It's just too hot. I firmly believe that <laughs> these high school athletes, bless their hearts, I know they've been out there practicing in the heat. The band members, by the way, practicing their halftime show on the asphalt in a lot of cases. They have to paint their own little football field on the parking lot asphalt to practice because when band camp's going on before school starts, the football team's also practicing, but they get to practice on the turf or the cushy grass and poor band members. So uh, y'all y'all say a, say a prayer or uh, some, some good vibes, some happy juju, whatever, to these kids that they're able to go out there and compete and not just keel over and collapse from the heat. I will, I will stay up and watch the news and see how my team did. <laughs> I will uh, watch the Falcons tonight, or at least the first quarter or so, however long the uh, starters play. I want to see how the starters look. Against a really good Cincinnati Bengals team, by the way, I want to see how the starters look. And then I'll watch the Braves. Again, not going to that game. It's alumni weekend. There are a lot of uh, all uh, former All-Stars and Braves greats that are going to be in town this weekend. It's too hot. My uh, buddy Ludwig tried to float the idea. Hey, what about the Sunday 1.30? Nope. I'm also hosting an open house for a house I have listed, so... Couldn't go anyway, but I wouldn't go into. Uh-uh. 1.30 on a Sunday afternoon in August? Y'all crazy. I, I don't understand why the Braves don't move their Sunday starts to 4.35 regardless. I'm sure Major League Baseball has their hand in that maybe. Has something to do with, well, you know, you got the West Coast teams that they want to start at 4.30 because they don't want to start at 1 because 1 o'clock Eastern is like 10. Whatever. It's too hot. It's just too damn hot. Sorry. And Atlanta, maybe with Cincinnati, this is going to be like the two hottest places for baseball to be played. But Ron, there's teams in Houston and Dallas and Miami, Tampa, Dome Stadiums. Atlanta, Cincinnati, those are the two. Mm -mm. Dome Stadium. Okay, so uh, you you didn't tune in to hear me talk about sports and the weather. I'm just saying it's too damn hot. It just is. And we've got another little heat burst coming. Remember that nice day and a half or so we had where it was like in the mid-80s? That was lovely, right? Look forward to September. Uh, Speaking of watching the news, last night I'm watching the news and this really pissed me off. 
Tonight, a teacher fired for using a controversial book to teach about gender identity to her fifth grade class. So the Cobb County School Board voted to fire the teacher, Katie Renderly, even though a hearing by the tribunal had recommended that she keep her job. Mm -hmm. 11 Alive John Sherrick is live for us tonight at the Cobb County School Board. John. And by the way, that tribunal made up of former teachers. The school board not made up of former teachers and administrators, just politicians, just people who want to sit on the school board. It's a, it's a plum little easy, easier anyway to get elected position that can oftentimes be a springboard for an aspiring politician, especially one in a county that used to be red that's now pretty solidly blue. But still, if you're living in the right part of Cobb County, that can propel your conservative career by having credentials like, well, I was anti-woke. Look what I did to this one school teacher. This one nice lady, fifth grade gifted elementary school teacher. That's, that's a bona fide now in today's Republican Party. Way to go, guys. I keep waiting for the Republican Party to hit a floor. Like, this is, this is the lowest of the lows. No. Anyway, here's the report from 11 Alive again. The teacher, Katie Rinderly, was here when the school board voted to fire her. Also here, parents who support Rinderly and parents who wanted her gone. God. Teacher Katie Rinderly embracing supporters after the Cobb County School Board voted to fire her. Rinderly declined to comment on camera. Her attorney, Craig Goodmark. Uh, so she's disappointed uh, that it went this way. Katie Rinderly, a teacher for 10 years, had fought for her job before the tribunal that last week heard the charges against her. The tribunal concluded that Rinderly showed lack of judgment when she read My Shadow is Purple to her fifth grade math class this past March. A book, by the way that had already been scrutinized by the school system, was sold at a book fair on the campus, a book that was chosen by her students for her to read to them. And then taught her students about themes in the book, about gender identity and gender fluidity. The tribunal called that controversial and said that Rinderly should have known and should have received approval first from the principal and from parents. But the tribunal recommended that Rinderly not be fired, as Superintendent Chris Ragsdale wanted. That motion carries. The school board fired her anyway by a vote of four to three. The three who voted to keep Rinderly, Becky Saylor, Leroy Trey Hutchins, and Nichelle Davis. Do you hear that maniacal applause in the background? People happy that a teacher in her early 30s who barely makes enough to live off of loses her job because she advocates inclusivity to her gifted fifth graders. Maniac deplorable. Yep, there's that word again. Disgusting. Rinderly's attorney says teachers statewide are receiving little guidance about what is legal under the state's new law against teaching divisive concepts unless parents consent. It's impossible for a teacher to know what's in the minds of parents when she starts her lesson and for parents to be able with a political agenda from outside the classroom to come in and have a teacher fired is simply unfair. Uh, it's not right. It's, it's terrible for Georgia's education system. Pamela Reardon is a new grandmother. I, I will protect that baby girl till the ends of the earth, and I don't want the teachers indoctrinating them. I want um, the parents to be parents and the teachers to teach. That's it. Okay, Grandma. So hopefully that baby girl is a baby girl and through life recognizes that she's a baby girl and doesn't come back and remember when grandma was on local news talking about how she's protecting her against the idea of embracing 
their true self if that baby girl isn't, in fact, in her heart, their heart, a baby girl. But you're doing this because you're protecting kids. Sure, Grandma. Obviously, we've had Renderly's attorney on before, Craig Goodmark. Uh, we, we heard from him in the uh, article as well. The Southern Poverty Law Center is involved as well. They released a statement, uh, including a quote from Katie, who's just not speaking directly to the media right now. She said, uh, I'm disappointed in the district's decision to terminate me for reading an inclusive and affirming book, one that is representative of diverse student identities. The district is sending a harmful message that not all students are worthy of affirmation in being their unapologetic and authentic selves. This decision, based on intentionally vague policies, will result in more teachers self-censoring in fear of not knowing where the invisible line will be drawn. Censorship perpetuates harm, and students deserve better. Mike Tafelski with the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, issuing a statement, we are disappointed in this decision, but not surprised. We knew this was a predetermined outcome dictated by Chris Ragsdale and the Cobb County Board of Education majority. Republicans. They continue to prioritize discrimination, bigotry, and retaliation in Cobb County schools, and we will continue to hold them accountable for their unlawful conduct. This is not the end of the case. This is the beginning. Of the four Republicans who voted to terminate her, uh, one includes Brad Wheeler, a retired coach and teacher. You know how the coaches get to teach, right? <clears throat> Uh, they also include, oh, this guy. <laughs> How about David Banks? Uh, David Bank, Banks, who uh, referred to COVID-19 as the China virus, also used his official board email account to discourage vaccination and distributed information that claimed, quote, the government was intentionally killing its citizens. Mm-hmm. And then there's David Chastain, who has no background in, in public education, aside from being a product of public education. And I'm not, I'm not crapping on the fact that, you know, he doesn't have a public education background, but I, I actually think that school boards should actually include current faculty members. There, I said it. I've said that for a long time. Creating school boards that are politically driven and motivated is what nets us this sort of stuff. And, these feckless, spineless four, obviously fearful of reprisal from the, they call themselves silent majority, but they're neither silent nor a majority, especially in Cobb County, chose to do not what was right, not what was decent, not what was to use some cogent thought process to render their decision. No, they, they bowed to political pressure. The anti-woke mob, right? That's what they did. That is what they did. You remember we had Cobb County Commissioner on Jerrica Richardson on, uh, maybe if you have listened to the show almost from the uh, get-go last fall, she is the commissioner that the Republican Party is trying to remove from the board by saying, uh, well, we redistricted and she no longer lives in the district that she represents. Well, that's because you drew, but you, you got to let her serve out a term, right? No, they wanted her out then. They're, they're trying to maintain control of a county that they don't win anymore. When you look at raw voter data, 
Going back to 2016, Hillary Clinton carried Cobb County. 2018, Stacey Abrams carried Cobb County. 2020, Joe Biden carried Cobb County. 2022, Stacey Abrams again carried Cobb County. So why is the GOP holding a 4-3 majority on the school board? School board seats aren't as sexy as county commission seats or state representative seats, but they're just as important, and we see now why. We see why they have lasting repercussions for future generations. And it's time for the Cobb County Democratic Party to start flexing their muscle for local seats. Now, that won't help Katie Rinderley get her job back, although I think she'll do fine somewhere else eventually and may even win some money in litigation. But it's good for the county that is a blue county to start seeing blue representation, not just at the state house and federal level, but locally as well. Back after this on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, and thank you for listening as you start or continue your weekend. Just drawn to the entire Cobb County picture right now. Obviously, the school board situation is one that is really one seat away from being what I think would be correct. You would think that a county that, again, voted for Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Stacey Abrams twice from 2016 through 2022 is firmly now a blue county that it would have a slightly majority, if at the very least, slightly majority school board. But as we've seen with the Republican Party, they love to gerrymander. Now, I'm not going to sit here and dive into the school board uh, map because, eh, I don't know. I think that's sometimes getting a little too in the weeds. But I will say that there has been a concerted effort to maintain GOP control over a county that is no longer a solid red county, but I would say is pretty much a solid blue county now based on the results of the last seven plus years of elections. Uh, earlier this week, in fact, this story from uh, Taylor Croft a few days ago in the AJC, a Cobb County Superior Court judge has ruled that a lawsuit challenging the county's self-drawn electoral map for the commission can move forward. But one of the plaintiffs, Kelly Gambrell, the GOP commissioner who filed it, she's no longer on that case, according to the judge. Uh, Gambrell filed two lawsuits in her capacity as a resident, not as a commissioner, a complaint for declaratory relief seeking a ruling on the constitutionality of the county past map, and a writ of mandamus asking the court to compel the county to reinstate the state-approved map and remove Commissioner Jerrica Richardson, a Democrat, from office because under that map, she no longer lives in District 2. This is another one of those cases where conservatives... Really, they, they, they don't like, oh, they don't like federal overreach, especially when it's from the other party in control of federal governance. They don't like federal overreach. It's all about states' rights. Well, we like things local. And then when you get drilling, drilling it down to like where it actually is local, oh, no, 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 we, 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 we want the state to control. Well, why? I thought you wanted it to be local. I, I, I say this with, with folks who have uh, issues with abortion all the time. Um we don't want there to be a federal policy. We want that to be left up to the states. Well, why stop at the states? Why not the county? Well, why stop at the county? Why why not go to the city? Well, why stop at the city? Go to the homeowners association. Maybe just the block. Maybe just the street. Maybe just the people in the house. Maybe just the person who's pregnant. Hmm. 
nonetheless, this uh, decision by the Superior Court judge earlier this week, uh, Ann Harris, uh, she issued a ruling on Wednesday that allowed the complaint to advance, denying Cobb County's motion to dismiss. Uh, Gambrell, the commissioner, was removed from the case for lack of standing, in part because she used her position as a commissioner in her arguments. Um, but uh, the other plaintiffs, David and Catherine Flom, added to the lawsuit later, Cobb County residents who live in the disputed area. Um, the judge uh, and Harris determined they do have grounds to sue the county. There is, however, uh, a little bit of a reprieve for Jerrica Richardson, who, by the way, was elected to a position with a term that the GOP is trying to lop in half and give themselves back majority control of the county that, again, has been voting solid blue since 2016. Uh, the article Taylor Croft writes that the AJC continues, Cobb County has been operating in uncertainty under its electoral map passed by the Democratic majority in a novel legal gambit. The county passed map replaced the map passed by a majority Republican state legislature that would have drawn Richardson out of her district midway through her term and potentially left the board in a 2-2 split that would have dismantled the Democratic majority that took over in 2020. Four years after they voted for Hillary Clinton, two years after they voted for Stacey Abrams. Clearly, it's a blue county. Uh, the county attorney has argued that commissioners passing their own map was permissible under the home rule provision of the state constitution. There's no one of those deals where they love the state constitution except when it doesn't convenience them. Uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, Republican, issued a brief in the lawsuit arguing that the county's action is unconstitutional. But the state, yeah, whatever. Legal experts dispute whether Richardson would have been forced to vacate her position immediately or if she would have been forced out of the role after an election. Still, the county's unprecedented move created a constitutional question of whether counties have the authority to draw their own electoral maps, which Harris has allowed to advance to arguments in a November hearing. In the meanwhile, in the meanwhile, Jerrica Richardson continues to have her seat on the county board. Oh, by the way, a little footnote here at the bottom of this article. The plaintiff's attorney, Ray Smith III, does that name sound familiar? Uh, yeah, he was indicted this week on racketeering charges and 11 other counts related to former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Is it worth pointing that out? Well, I'm going to. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, about that, uh, there was another piece in the Journal of Constitution earlier this week. Again, Taylor Croft, which is all over the place with this, uh, writes back in 2020, Smith advised the alternate GOP electors who met in a committee room at the state capitol, cast votes for Trump, and signed documents falsely claiming Trump won. Article continues, the charges are the culmination of a years-long criminal investigation launched by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Smith has been charged with multiple felonies in Fulton County, including violation of the Georgia RICO, the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act, conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer, two counts of conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree, Conspiracy to commit filing false documents, two counts of conspiracy to commit false statements and writings, two counts of false statements and writings, and three counts of solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. For Smith, the indictments come in the middle of his civil case against the Cobb County Commission, as we just spoke about earlier. Uh, Taylor writes, uh, it is unclear how the indictment will, if at all, impact Smith's ability to represent uh, Commissioner Gambrell in the ongoing lawsuit over Cobb County's map which has been an uncertain legal limbo for nearly a year. 
uh, near the end of that article, it is against the State Board of Georgia's rules of professional conduct for an attorney, quote, to be convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor involving moral turpitude where the underlying conduct relates to the practice of law, according to its website. However, attorneys accused of crimes are protected from disciplinary investigations until convicted. So Smith will continue to be able to practice law in the meantime. Okay, when we come back, we got to touch on State Senator Colton Moore rallying to defend the state of Georgia's res. No, I'm just kidding. Not the, not the grand jurors who have been threatened now since they got doxxed by a super fringy right wing website. No, he wants to protect Donald Trump from justice. The Law and Order Party, y'all, wants to defend the alleged criminal from Law and Order. I didn't stutter. We've got all that, and we got to talk about the country song that's taken the country by storm and debates. Still. Next on The Ron Show, the American One Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Call or text The Ron Show anytime at 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Thanks for listening throughout your weekend at whatever point you are listening to us on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. So over the last couple of weeks, this grassroots song by Oliver Anthony called uh, Richmond North of Richmond has been gaining popularity in social media circles, billboard chart, whole nine yards. Uh, it, it speaks to the lament, as we've talked about earlier this week, of the hardworking guy who works overtime for a bullshit pay. That's, that's at least a swipe at capitalism, right? Uh, while uh, short, fat people use EBT to buy fudge round cookies. And, and this isn't the first time we've had something like this happen before. You, you see, there was a song that Johnny Cash was asked to sing for Richard Nixon when President Nixon requested it. And Johnny Cash wouldn't sing the song because he didn't want to make fun of poor people. It's a song called Welfare Cadillac. Here's just a little sample of that. I know the place ain't much, but I sure don't pay no rent. I get a check the first of every month from this year federal government. See where this is going? Every Wednesday I get commodities by sometimes four or five sacks. Pick them up down to welfare office driving that new Cadillac. The insinuation that uh, the poor person isn't prioritizing what money they do have by spending it on necessities, but instead buys the flashy Cadillac. Cadillac, of course, very big in the African-American community, status symbol for many years. That song uh, came out in 1970, by the way, and was sort of a tongue-in-cheek poke of fun by the artist Guy Drake. Yeah, I mean, we've been here before. Literally, there's an article that appeared at Slate.com Early this morning, actually this afternoon, I see, from Josh Levin. The headline, Oliver Anthony's Richmond, north of Richmond, has made an unknown a superstar. We've been here before. This isn't the first time that a welfare-bashing country song became an overnight success. I'm reminded, and I'm sure many of you think about it too, of the trope, the 
Reagan era ushering in, in essence, of the welfare queen. And how many of us would hear stories of that time in the checkout line? You already know where I'm going with this. Where we're buying just what we can afford, the necessities, the bare necessities, just enough to keep bellies from grumbling, right? With our hard-earned money. The last of our hard-earned money. And yet, either before us or had to be before us, in line at the checkout was the woman with the multiple kids, the latest iPhone, the designer handbag, (laughs) nails done to the nines, hair flawless, jewelry just hanging off of every appendage she has, her cart full of Steaks and lobsters, right? You've heard this. You've heard this trope. We've all heard we've all heard somebody who's been behind that woman in the checkout line using her EBT card, or back in the day it was just the food stamps. And you were just flummoxed. And if that wasn't insulting enough, once those taxpayer funded groceries were sacked up, right? She would roll her grocery cart out to the parking lot. And damn if she wasn't getting in a brand new Escalade. How many times have we heard that story? We've all had someone tell us this story. And that was kind of a pre-internet thing. But it also, of course, circulated on the internet too. Somebody went through that very scenario, oddly enough. And almost to the letter, that was their experience. That's the welfare queen trope. Which I, I could disseminate. You don't know. By the way, unless you're some sort of handbag expert, that that's a a knockoff or a real handbag or maybe a gift. You don't know their jewelry's real or gifted. You don't even know that those are her kids. You don't even know if she's not picking up food for her shut-in grandma or grandpa or father or mother, aunt or uncle. You don't know. You don't know that that's her Escalade. You don't know that she's not picking up necessities while on the job as maybe an errand runner for somebody who does own that Escalade. I mean, there, there's so many ways to, to just kind of stifle the presumptiveness of such a trope. But it was a trope. Let's be honest. It was just an urban... Urban. It was a suburban... <laughs> a suburban Red County uh, myth. A concoction. And back in 1970 fellow by the name of Guy Drake. I think he was painting uh, power line poles or something like that, I think as the story goes. Uh, radio towers, maybe. He was, and by the way, those radio towers usually are out in the middle of nowhere or in poor neighborhoods because nobody wants to live underneath radio towers. And as I've learned here recently, I've got a fantastic listing uh, in Southeast Atlanta uh, that happens to be kind of near, but not near enough, uh, major power line uh, uh, clearance there. And there are folks that don't want to live near power lines. I didn't know it was a thing. I, I do now. You would think there's a realtor. I would know that. But n- I know, but I mean, there are people who are fearful of uh, the, uh, the EMFs from the power line somehow causing cancer. There's been no research that validates that. Uh, and you'd have to like literally have that 
that power line over your house for it to even emit anything that would be any worse than what your microwave emits. But I digress. Uh, I'm going to read you a little bit of this article. Again, Josh Levin writing this in uh, Slate. Richmond, north of Richmond, was the first song Oliver Anthony says he ever recorded using a professional microphone. The red-bearded Virginians out-of-nowhere country hit gets a whole lot done in just three minutes. It's also pretty repetitive. It's not, like, lyrically deep. Anyway, uh, it's a working man's anthem. I've been selling my soul working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay. A conservative rallying cry. Because your dollar ain't shit and it's taxed to no end. And a starter kit for the conspiracy curious. I wish politicians would look out for miners, cold miners, and not just miners on an island, Weinstein Island, right? But while this might be the first American chart topper to reference Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes, Anthony's viral sensation isn't all that newfangled either as a piece of music or a culture war grenade. Don't be fooled by the title. The most vividly drawn villains in Red Men North of Richmond aren't rich. Quote, Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat. In the obese milk and welfare, Anthony yowls in the second verse in the next couplet. He completes the picture. Well, God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. You know, as I listen to myself reading that lyric again, it's like, he's not going to get it. He's not going to get a Grammy for that line. I need something. It rhymes with fudge rounds. <laughs> I need something that rhymes with 300 pounds. Fudge rounds! The article continues, It's a potent image, one that draws on the welfare queen stereotype that oozed to life in the 1970s. Uh, Levin continues, I could go on for many hundreds of pages about where that trope came from and how it got deployed. And he says, and I have, he has citation for that. But if you want a primer on the musical tradition that Oliver Anthony is drawing on, all you have to do is listen to another out-of-nowhere country hit, Guy Drake's Welfare Cadillac. Uh-huh. I played you a little snippet of that. I'll can include that in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Like Oliver Anthony, Guy Drake didn't take a traditional path to music stardom. Drake was born in Kentucky in 1904 and worked as an undertaker's assistant, among other odd jobs. The way he told it, inspiration struck him when he was well into middle age. One day, in the mid-1960s, he was perched high above the earth, painting a radio tower. See, I did remember this. When he came upon a striking scene, I looked down and saw this shanty that was half wood and half holiday ensign with a roof made of sawmill slabs, tin cans, and pieces of linoleum. There was a litter of young'uns, some of them old enough for school, without a stitch of clothes on. I didn't see any grown-ups. What really got me was this Cadillac parked in front of the house. Article continues, according to Drake, when he made his way back down to the ground, he scribbled a bunch of words on a paint can label, the first song he ever wrote. For years after that, he said he couldn't convince anyone to record those lyrics. But in 1969, he spent $1,500 of his own money to have a record made. Not long after that, Welfare Cadillac, which, by the way, he misspelled with just one L, started motoring across the country, picking up fans and inciting outrage. 
So I already gave you some of the lyrics by actually listening to the song. So you heard the not-so-thinly-veiled reference to being poor and misplaced priorities. But that brand new Cadillac. Uh, Drake's song hit Billboard's Hot Country Singles Chart in January of 1970, according to Josh Levin, writing at Slate.com. A month later, Variety reported that 50 welfare recipients stormed into a Kansas City radio station and demanded that it be taken off the air. A few weeks after that, an Oregon welfare official sent a recorded statement to radio stations in that state. It isn't easy being poor, he said. Those who are need a helping hand, not ridicule and shame. Guy Drake was in the ridicule business, the article writes, when he performed Welfare Cadillac on television. He did it with a sly, toothless grin and a comically enormous flower on his lapel. Drake said that all those protesters were taking him way too seriously. I didn't write this song to make anybody mad, he told reporters. I just wanted people to laugh because I figured if they were laughing, they wouldn't be thinking about their troubles. He then added, if they ain't on welfare and don't drive a Cadillac, then I ain't talking about them. The story continues. Not everyone found that argument convincing. Rolling Stone magazine called Drake's song disgustingly racist, a three-minute riff on how undeserving layabouts live high on the hog while hardworking Americans get shafted. Sound familiar, Oliver Anthony? But in 1970, a whole lot of Americans were humming Drake's tune. When a Louisville radio station asked its listeners to weigh in, they voted 25 to 1 in favor of Welfare Cadillac. Does that sound familiar? Country music? Try that in a small town. What happened to the Dixie Chicks? <laughs> you see? Mob rule. They don't like mob rule when it comes to presidential elections, but they like it when it comes to pop culture. Um... Guy Drake's most prominent supporter and his best publicist was the President of the United States. In the spring of 1970, Richard Nixon requested that Johnny Cash play three songs during a scheduled visit to the White House. A Boy Named Sue, Okie from Muskogee, and Welfare Cadillac, which wasn't Johnny's song. What up, Dick? When those selections became public, civil rights officials howled in protest. Meanwhile, Drake's record scales tripled, growing from 5,000 to 15,000 a day. Cash ultimately declined to sing Welfare Cadillac for Nixon or anyone else. But Guy Drake's record and the conversation surrounding it just wouldn't die. Drake's record label, Royal American, released a cover version recorded by a black blues musician, Jerry McCain. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the Candace Owens of the music industry from that era. <laughs> oh, man. Rolling Stone was not impressed. Quote, it's identical to the original, except at the end of each verse, McCain lets out this big Amos and Andy knee-slapping guffaw and jives. Ain't that a blessing? There were also covers by white artists, a rebuttal song called About That Welfare Cadillac, and a tune, Mortgaged Plymouth, that was billed as the taxpayer's answer to Welfare Cadillac. Hmm. At the height of the song's popularity in April 1970, Guy Drake got tossed in a Kentucky jail. The charge? Writing a bad check to buy a used car. <laughs> oh my gosh. Drake laughed the whole thing off, saying the whole thing was ancient history, but that he thought the debt had been paid. Uh -huh. He got released quickly and started churning out new music, including an anti-peacenik anthem called The Marching Hippies. And there's one other that some won't like, he told Billboard. It takes a crack at people who keep on having children to draw bigger aid 
checks. Oh, and in this article, again, I'll share that in today's show notes at ronchoydl.com. Guy Drake did threaten he was going to run for president. I mean, he didn't, but he said he was going to. Uh, So the culminating paragraph for this article, Drake was a huckster and an opportunist. He gave people what they wanted to hear and laughed all the way to the Cadillac dealership. Oliver Anthony comes off as entirely sincere and genuinely angry about rich men and Jeffrey Epstein, but especially the, quote, obese milk and welfare people he believes don't deserve what they're getting. That's a message with a whole lot of resonance for a whole lot of Americans in the 1970s and today. And that kind of resentment isn't anything to joke about. Hear, hear. Yeah, personally, I'm on the record. I, I don't think it's an angst to be ignored. I think it is something Democrats were loath to ignore in the 2016 cycle and ought not do it again. We talked with Andrew Heaton, a local political consultant, yesterday, and he agreed. No, we, we, have, to, we have to speak to the economic gains that have been made under this presidential administration, but also to the current struggles that Americans still face. Heartened to hear that he believes so. I just hope that we get that from the campaign trail in a populist vein. More Ron Show after this on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. Last segment for the week. Thank you for listening. As much as you did this week and or weekend, I certainly appreciate it. If you miss any of the show, but you're like, wow, this guy does this five days a week? Well, yeah, you can listen to any or all of it. Got it all archived for you at ronshowatl.com on uh, all the major podcast platforms. So like when I put a new podcast episode up Monday through Friday, you can get the notification if you follow the show. Just look for The Ron Show. It's pretty easy. Like I actually was surprised. Like mine's the first one that comes up when you put in The Ron Show. And I think there are other shows called The Ron Something Show or Ron Show. There's Anyway, I come up. You see the back of my bald head on the logo. Let's uh, wrap with uh, Senator Colton Moore, State Senator Colton Moore, who is uh, trying to eke out a little bit of a relevant uh, spot on uh, Trump's boot. Uh, He tweets uh, yesterday, As the Georgia State Senator, I am officially calling for an emergency session to review the actions of Fonnie Willis. America's under attack. No, Donald Trump is under attack. But then again, Donald Trump tried to attack the electoral process in this country, in this state, and perhaps several several others. There's there's smoke in Arizona. Uh, He continues tweeting, I'm not going to sit back and watch as radical left prosecutors politically target, in all caps, political opponents. So he did send out this letter. (laughs) And somehow in the letter, what does he say? Uh, Dear Governor Kemp, we the undersigned. He's the only one who signed it. We, the undersigned, being duly elected members, he's the only one that signed it, of the Georgia House of Representatives and Georgia Senate, and comprising three-fifths of each respective house, pursuant to Article 4, Section 2, Paragraph 7B, hereby certify to you in writing with a copy of the copy to the Secretary of State. Oh, Brad Ravensburger? Good luck with that. Then, in our opinion, an emergency exists in the affairs of the state requiring a special session to be convened under the section under that section for all purposes to include without limitation the review and response to the actions of Fonnie Willis. <laughs> oh, Colton. He uh, continued, by the way, in a subsequent tweet, we must strip all funding and, if appropriate, impeach Fonnie Willis. 
That sounds a lot like defund the law enforcement. I'm calling on patriots, air quotes, across America to join me in this fight. Oh, and look, a donation link. There's a donation link. You don't need to donate to sign a petition, but he's looking for money. Man, this guy is a Donald Trump acolyte. Am I right? He's figured it out. That's how you do it. He obviously uh, angling to be a co-conspirator himself. Um, a few things to point out. Despite his letter to Governor Brian Kemp, which I think falls on deaf ears, uh, the written claim that like 60% of the lawmakers have signed his demand. Well, that's aspirational. He's the only one that signed the damn thing. He's gotten no responses from his colleagues. I mean, that's a little surprising because usually, you know, nondescript Republicans jump at the chance to throw their support behind, I was going to say seditious coups, but Donald Trump, same thing. Um, he hasn't tweeted a thing about the death threats starting to show up uh, at the grand jurors. I mean, he's elected to represent Georgians, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not a Georgia resident. But all the grand jurors who are now getting doxxed on fringe right-wing websites, their social media and their home addresses, if they're correct, being doxxed on that fringy far-right website. And here's the other thing. Like, if they don't have the right address, they don't have the right person, but it's the same name, they're even, like, exposing innocent people. Well, uh, grand jurors are innocent, too. But, I mean, people who are not in any way related. This is like uh, Sarah Connor. Girl, you're dead. Remember that from the Terminator movie? Yeah, Sarah Connor was in the news. Why is Sarah Connor in the news so much? My name is Sarah Connor. It's just such a common response when Republican crimes are revealed. Got to defund the apparatus that's trying to expose those crimes. Defund the DOJ. They want to defund the IRS. Despite the fact, by the way, that the IRS has gotten to be a lot more efficient with that additional IRS funding. Do you know now that hold times to speak to an IRS agent are now under five minutes? I mean, I get it. It's a low bar. But that's not nothing, man. Like, if you call the IRS, you're going to get through pretty quickly. And that's kind of different. According to a Fortune article, taxpayers who called the IRS had an average wait time of four minutes this tax season compared to 27 minutes a year ago, according to the agency on Monday. Ahead of the tax filing deadline on Tuesday, this was back in April, the IRS is promoting its improved customer service and giving credit to a big boost in funding provided by the Inflation Reduction Act that Democrats pushed through Congress last year. Look at there, y'all. Government can be efficient when it's funded. And while we're thinking about Oliver Anthony and the inefficiency and the graft and, uh, you know, of of the the welfare system, that's another governmental agency that is highly underfunded and can't be well scrutinized without enough funding to do so. So, I mean, obviously there's going to be waste. When you don't have enough shopkeepers to mind the shop, you're going to deal with shrinkage. And that is a retail term, by the way, for loss, loss prevention, theft, shoplifting. Not, I dived into cold water and 
<laughs> and on that note, hopefully you find some cold water this weekend. It's going to be another hot one. Enjoy some pool time or some lake time or some hooch time if you're going to go shoot in the hooch or whatever. Have yourselves a great weekend. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Get more at RonShowATL.com. See you.